Hello all, uh, welcome to another episode of Directive Stories and today uh, we are joined by a special guest um, where we speak on the chronicles of uh, indigenous healers. We speak about the journey of healing and empowerment and if you're watching this live let me know in the comment section uh, from which city you're watching in or let us know uh, what would you love to hear or probably you can ask the questions for our special guests. So on this episode, uh, we are joined by um, Rosanna, who is a psychotherapist, clinician, manager, and uh, who is into social justice, working as a spiritual leader. Um, in fact, uh, she, she worked in many nonprofits. In fact, the kind of skill set she has is in nonprofit organizations, in management, um, in trauma therapy, and also as a... Um, student counseling or probably as part of uh, crisis intervention and case management. We can, um, I mean, um, welcome Rosanna um, Conforme Campuzana uh, onto our show. It's an honor. Thank you for accepting our invite to be part of Directive Stories. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my name is Rosanna Conforme Campuzano. Um, I think Raj, you um, mentioned uh, a couple of things that I've done, but just to give you a sense of, of who I am, I am. Uh, I was born in Ecuador, um, and I came to the states when I was three. Um, I'm an indigenous um, immigrant, um, woman of color, um, and I just have a way I identify. Um, I grew up in New York City in Brooklyn. And I did all my studies here. Um, and also have my work life has been here. So I've been living here for more than 30 plus years. And so um, it's a pleasure to have to be here, Raj. And thank you for inviting me um, and for just uh, bringing me in and being able to voice um, sort of my story and my journey through all my paths, um, whether that be the educational path, but also the professional one. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Rosanna, for a quick short intro as to who you are. So good to know that uh, you've been in um, U.S. for um, uh, almost, I guess, maybe close to 35 mm -hmm. or 40 years, but since three. Uh, this is awesome. So uh, you would know everything uh, from mental health space or probably what would a clinician require, right? Um, somebody who worked on uh, therapeutic approaches, pro probably somebody who worked on behavioral therapy. Uh, so let's dive in. Let's um, kickstart our show um, with another set of questions. Like um, in case uh, if, if, if there is uh, out there, if, if there is any other profession which you had to choose apart from uh, helping people right now, what profession would you choose, uh, Rosanna? So the, the, just to make sure I understood your question, Raj. So if I didn't choose this profession, what other profession I would have chosen? That's right. That's an interesting question because um, when I was, I knew I wanted to be a, a psychotherapist since I was seven years old. Um, and one of the things that I, um, that I thought of at the moment was wanting to help people. And that's sort of what I wanted. On the flip side, the other part of me wanted to be an actress. Um, when I was much younger, um, I used to create these monologues and 
play them out at home. And my parents thought I was talking to myself half the time. But really, I was just doing, creating the monologues and doing these amazing stories, which, by the way, I don't know what happened to them, but I was creating these amazing stories. Um, and I would have wanted to be an actress. Part of the reason why I wanted to be an actress at the time was um, there was so much going on um, with me. We were, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, I was raised in Brooklyn. And in the neighborhood that we were raised in, there was so much poverty, so much community violence that was happening. We were immigrants in this country. Um, we were, there was a lot of in access to, not having access to services. And so one of the things I was creating in some of these stories and monologues was really about sort of getting help, right? And being able to access some of the services that we were not being given the opportunity to have. And so what I wanted to do with these stories is change the narrative um, and create sort of these spaces where I would find some kind of assistance and help at that moment. So that is really the deepest thing I can think about at seven years old that I was thinking. But that was definitely what I was thinking in terms of just being, being either being a therapist, but also being an actress to change some of these, creating these monologues to be able to change the stories and the narratives of people and even just my community and my family. Wow. That's awesome. So mm -hmm. that, that's, that's, there, that's present right from childhood days, trying to create these monologues or create an impactful, um, um, creating more awareness in the community. Um, like how did the journey move into creating awareness on domestic violence? Yes, absolutely. So just to give you a sense of why I chose to be in, in the field that I am now, um, I started in my profession more than 21 years ago. And at wow. the time, I decided to enter this field because of my own personal experiences of family, sexual and community violence, trauma, uh, poverty, racism, sexism, colorism, and all the different forms of oppression one faces as an immigrant person of color in this country. I was determined to make a difference and make an impact in, the, in, in my world, um, in the women's movement, in the child abuse movement, particularly in the Latinx community. Um, I wanted to help families. Um, actually, 21 years ago, I wanted to save families as I would have wanted my family to be saved. Obviously, I learned very early quickly that my role was not to save anyone, but rather to support their journey, help them in explore their options, connect them to resources, help them discover their own inner power, um, and just basically be there as, as, part, of their, uh, as part of their journey, right? Um, today, what keeps me in the field is still the same issues, I also want to continue to address the mental health divide and the health divides that exist in immigrant, black, indigenous communities of color. Um, issues like these were even more exasperated during COVID. So I want to, part of why I continue to say what keeps me very passionate about it is really to help close these divides and gaps that I see, not only in, in the people that I work with, but also in research. Wow, okay, awesome. So in fact, all the obstacles or challenges which you have faced, um, had uh, paved a better way for you uh, is what I should say. So definitely with the kind of um, uh, certification or could you speak about the licensure exam? Like, uh, because normally uh, any therapist or uh, licensed clinical social worker whom I speak to or chat, uh, they say they had given multiple attempts to clear their exam. So I just wanted to know based upon uh, you, I could see that you were a tough woman. Uh, so how long did it take for you to clear your licensure exam? Right. Well, that's a journey too in and of itself, right? Because I think when you do the licensing exam, it's never the same. And no matter how you study, um, you don't know what you're studying for. 
is such an exam that it's like, it's not like you have 100 questions and all of a sudden you study those 100 questions and you're there. It's definitely a lot. For me, particularly, I had been in the field for such a long time before I took the licensure exam. So it, I had to change my way of thinking um, because I'm also very culturally adaptive to everything that I do and also very culturally um, sort of aware, um, especially when I talk to my clients. Um, the exam is not that way. It's very westernized, very, uh, you don't, you can't analyze anything. It's just what's very, whatever is there. So I had to learn that process very differently. And they taught us that when I went to one of the classes. Um, so it took me a little bit before I even was confident enough to take the exam. I had heard of folks as well take it several times in that past um, because of the way the exam is structured. Um, and because it's honestly not sort of the real life <laughs> thing that happens when you when you see some of these questions and so you really have to just back off and just look at what the what the what the um, question is in front of you so it took me a little bit um i did pass the exam and it was a success for me at the moment because um it's a four-hour exam that's also very tedious four hours your brain is really done and tired by that time four hours come up later um and to see sort of a passing grade or p right next to your name is an amazing uh, feeling to have but it is a process. It's not something that is simple. Um, it's something that we, for any person who's trying to get a license that they should study, um, make the time to do it, make the time commitment to do it. Um, keep it in mind that there is no um, sort of guide that this is the way the exam is going to be. You can only get sort of experiences of past exams that you have and you can look at them um, and they'll give it to you depending if you go to different, especially the National Association of Social Workers have a lot of um, like workshops regarding LMSWs and LCSWs that they can give you sort of tips around what they possibly come out in the exam or not. So I would also say that you should take that so that if you are able to sort of have some idea of what the exam could be about and also they can practice with you um, some uh, sort of logistical things that can, can happen as well as some uh, textual things. They also give you um, if you do register for these classes, they also give you like an, an, a workbook that um, shows exam questions and it helps you with some of the exercises and continues to do that. I've signed up for many different things, not just the NSAW um, workshop. I also signed up for like different platforms where I can do practice exams um, so that I can be better prepared. But it is really, okay. it's not an easy exam. Definitely it isn't. Yeah, I see that um, you, you've also worked with different uh, schools of social work, helping other uh, students take up the certification or graduate uh, with the kind of social work which they're in. Like, could you speak about the youth programs or the kind of uh, women's health initiatives you have taken up? I, I, I was just going through the same uh, when, uh, when I went through your bio, probably beat uh, the Saki for uh, South Asian women. So could you speak about the kind of initiatives which you have taken, Rosanna? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, definitely I've been in different organizations and mostly in nonprofit organizations. Um, my first job was in Safe Horizon um, where I did a lot of work within the court system. Um, I was working with families. I wasn't necessarily just working with women, um, but definitely um, at that time I was working with women, men and children. Um, who were survivors of child sexual abuse and also for uh, survivors of domestic violence. And so I was pretty much in the court system. So I did a lot of work in advocacy work within the court system and also within um, 
uh, uh, the court, uh, sort of the criminal and the family court system, and obviously with different other systems itself. So we did a lot of a lot of I did a lot of work with with them at the time. At the time, I was also in in Safe Horizon. I was a, a co-facilitator in the Batters program, which was a mandated program um, that uh, provided uh, workshops and services to men who were um, who were mandated. Uh, who were who were considered perpetrators of um, through the core perpetrators of domestic violence. So I would facilitate a lot of groups there. Um, from there, I went over to Seki for South Asian women. I was a director of services at the time, um, and I was providing sort of an oversight of this of the case management and the the, the um, financial empowerment program that they had there. And that was a learning for me too at the time as well because it was a different community than my own. And definitely getting to learn sort of the the culture and understanding the culture and definitely being an ally versus coming in as I know it all because I'm a director now, but definitely being an ally to to this particular community was an important process and an important learning for me um, in my own field. Also, an important learning of humility um, as well, because I think, again, once you have a degree, you think you can go out and save the world. And honestly, the world is, is very, it's hard and different for many communities. And in particular, when I was working in Seki, that was one of the things that I, I recognized and realized and worked with a lot of my teams to be able to understand what the community needed that was different than the Latinx community. Um, so I did a lot of work with them around that, but definitely using my staff, um, especially because I didn't know the language many times, but also using my staff as a biology to make sure that we were doing with, um, what women, what they wanted, what they needed. So hearing their voices was a particular thing. I think that was the very first time in that particular organization when I started understanding that hearing survivor voices was so important. Yeah, and this is a tricky question which I wanted to ask Rosanna. With the kind of uh, uh, different personalities you had worked, uh, probably we could also highlight on the diversity and inclusion factor which, you, which we mentioned uh, in you know previous calls, so what's your take on the kind of documentation which a um, which any therapist had to go through? Uh, mm -hmm. Because normally, uh, in the mental health space, if somebody is going through um, as a person who had worked in the nonprofit uh, segment, you know that there is a huge documentation which needs to be done. Yeah. What's mm -hmm. your take on that? How do we solve that problem? Yeah. Like, I mean, do you have any ideas? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the things I've been trying to do within my uh, research um, in, in my doctoral studies um, and looking at some of the gaps in research and understanding how to culturally adapt an intervention, for example, or how to be culturally um, mindful and, and make sure that we're there's cultural relevancy um, around sort of the work that we do. We have to all keep in mind, no matter what communities we work in, is that to be inclusive, we also not only have to provide someone with the language because you know, I do feel that once you put an interpreter, you, you lose a connection and there's not always a clean uh, interpretation from one language to English in the way that we want it to be. So I, that I know as, as experience um, that that doesn't really happen in the way, in the clean way that we want it, aside from the fact that you lose connection with clients at the same time. So definitely being able to provide clients with the uh, ability of having someone who is able to speak in their language and that they can relate to. Second is to translate in some of these forms and documentations that you have so that it can, that clients can understand what they're first looking at, signing, 
And if even if they don't understand or know how to read, even being able to provide that access to um, being able to be, include that as part of your work, if in fact you have someone in front of you who doesn't know the language, um, but definitely being able to translate in the language of the, 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 of the population that you're working with. Um, third of all is, you know, many of our practices here in the U.S. is very westernized, uh, American, oh, yeah. very yeah. Americanized. And one of the things that I have been doing, um, and even just looking at within my doctoral studies, is how do you become more inclusive? And one of the thing, many things that they've suggested and I have done is done focus groups with clients and talk about what they want to have, what some of the things that they want to have included in their sessions, um, what they, if we're going to try, trying to change or, or, or adapt an, an intervention, um, we want to be able to ask what kind of things they, they, they think that we should highlight um, in our community so that we can understand and do sort of a holistic approach to being able to provide services to clients without creating sort of this divide because I do feel that we've been imposing um, to our clients these westernized um, interventions and approaches and not really taking the time to look at um, or even just integrate some of the cultural practices or traditional practices that they have in these interventions. So really looking at that and making sure that we're hearing them, making sure like what the coping mechanisms are that we can include that instead of us trying to say, hey, breathe, that this works, you know? And, and, and what have they been doing? And um, they have been doing it more than we have. So what can we include when we're like adapting interventions, for example? So things like that, I feel like is you still have to hear survivors. And that's not, that has not been the practice within the U.S. when it comes to like really looking at or providing services to clients. The assumption has always been that there's an intervention and we put it in to everyone in a very general way. And it doesn't work. It hasn't worked, right? And so I think at this point, we have to be much more mindful and make sure that we're making connections with our community, not in the way that we're seeing it as experts, right? But more that they're already experts to what they have done and they have practices that will be helpful and much more powerful than the ones that we can give them. Yeah, and could we talk about the indigenous healer? So, how does one um, become an a, a, become a indigenous healer, or what's 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 our take on uh, sharing the stories of healing and empowerment? Because not only from uh, family perspective, the trauma or sexual violence or kind of abuse which is there, there's so many things uh, due to the pandemic, parenting, or beat on personal lives or on the relationship. We're all going through lots of changes, mm -hmm. uh, even. So how, what's your take on uh, how should um, one go ahead probably with their journey of life? Yeah. So just to make sure I understand your question. So you want to, I'm sorry, can you just repeat the question? Yeah. So the question is like, uh, what should one do uh, to be part of this uh, journey of being an indigenous healer? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. probably what should... As you mentioned, that uh, therapy is not just breathing and breathe out. It's not about uh, being mindful about the current situation. It's more of uh, overall uh, therapy. So how can one mm -hmm. become a uh, indigenous healer? Probably I can put it like, what should one do uh, to have a similar career like yours? Mm -hmm. Sure. So for me, and I can only speak for myself at this moment, right? Um, one of the things that happened, I would say maybe 20 years ago was, um, more than that, um, was a denial of my own identity, of who I was. 
Um, okay. Partly because of the way that um, growing up in the U.S., you know, you're not accepted as often if you're talking about being indigenous, right? You're not accepted in that way. You're already a person of color just by looking at me. Like this is the, by just staring, knowing and, and just looking at me, you know that um, I'm not I'm not white. And so um, there's a lot of rejection that goes alongside that. So I spent that three years in school and, and definitely around the, the environment that I grew up in. Um, and by the time I hit, I would say mid twenties, um, I started recognizing sort of my indigenous um, part of myself. And it took a, a lot to really understand what that meant for me. And it has been a work in progress that at this point of my life, I'm able to say, um, you know, proudly say that I am an, I am an indigenous woman. Um, what that comes along with is understanding your culture and, and, and definitely understanding where, what, it, what it means, the traditions that it holds, um, what kind of things they've done, um, what practices they use, uh, what healing practices they use and really help in understanding that. So for me, I had to learn how to understand that. It wasn't something just reading a book. It was really understanding sort of the, the nature of my culture and the way and the approaches they have done to be able to heal centuries of healing, right? Because it wasn't just um, today. It's been, you know, hundreds and decades of healing of, of different sorts, especially when we talk about colonialism um, and sort of just how, um, you know, in, particularly in my country, how many of, of my um, of my people were were killed, right? And so I think there was a lot. There's a lot of trauma around that, and so really understanding how some of the healing practices came came into play. So for me, it was just learning. It was a lot of learning. It was a lot of understanding my culture. It was a lot of asking. A lot of understanding my own ancestors and sort of the practices that they did. Um, it was understanding sort of the medicine that they used that is not, again, not westernized in that way. Um, understanding sort of like what healing circles are because there was a lot of use of healing circles in my, in, in, in the indigenous cult, in the indigenous um, background that I have. Um, storytelling is a big thing as well that, you know, now if you, I don't know if you ever seen this Raj, um, but one of the things that, um, that, um, Come, has come about in the U.S. is about sort of this digital storytelling um, sort of um, aspect of healing in which you talk about your stories in different ways when it comes to videos and using videos and like this technology and like voice and music and all and, and images so that you can create sort of a narrative. And so to be quite honest, when you look at some of these practices, you realize these practices are practices that my ancestors have been doing years ago. It just wasn't named that way. And so uh, probably we can speak it as like the current uh, artificial intelligence are probably the virtual reality. I, I saw patients uh, in therapy sessions with the VR glasses mm -hmm. uh, trying to visualize a different uh, uh, environment uh, when they're going through therapy or probably when they are um, um, under some kind of a treatment, if they had to sit for six to eight hours. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess... Definitely, uh, what you shared uh, adds value to what ancestors had done in the past and with what the current technology is doing. Yeah. And I want to empower, I want to take, you know, definitely empower that part of myself. And for those who are, in, um, a, in, if I'm serving someone who's an indigenous uh, person, I want to empower the fact that, yes, these indigenous practices that, are, that have been around for so many years have become westernized. Um, in so many ways. And so it's, it's like now they have a name. But you know what? My ancestors has been doing it for 100 years ago. And so I want to make sure that 
I own that, that not only I own that, but I also respect to the person that's in front of me that this is what's been happening even before it became a name that's now like, you know, very expensive to even access, right? And so I think that yeah. for me, that's important to understand and to recognize um, these practices. And again, using medicine, using plants, all this stuff that, you know, again, like I would ignore before and that I would just, you know, part of myself because of the way that I grew up and I was told to be shamed I was shamed about. I was shamed about it, and so I think that was um, creating sort of that power within myself, but also now being able to help those to I to explore and identify in the way best way that they can, and also being able to find their own practices. I wonder what that means to them. Not everybody is going to do meditation and breathing, right? That's not maybe the way they do it. They may do a visualization, like you just mentioned, right? But their visualization is different. Metaphysics works. I've talked about visualization in so many. That is years. true. And that has gone for many years. It's not something that just came up new, but they name it differently. So how do we really keep on? And I, it goes back into when we think about um, these different practices that we use when it comes to outside of westernized practices. How do we take on and bring the power back to the practices that we have done in our communities? And especially for the clients that we work with, how do we take in their voices and make sure that we um, honor their own practices without imposing others that are very similar to what they've been doing. Yeah. yeah so there's this like uh, let's let's go through uh, like a fireside chat probably with series of questions. Thank you so much for sharing that, Rosanna. So yeah. again, uh, I'll flash the question on the screen. Uh, uh, what is this one thing you wish you had known before you began your career, based upon your personal? Um, experience what do you what do you wish like uh, do you wish um, you were born in America or do you wish um, probably you had more resources or yeah. uh, at the beginning of your career what is that one thing which you wish you had known I mean definitely all of that um, but I think also one of the things that I would have wanted to know was that I would find myself in this journey um, Many times you enter the prof helping profession with a huge commitment and helping others. But no one really tells you that you're going to find yourself in, in, the, in the way. And then doing so, um, that the path sometimes is painful, but it's also very empowering. And for me, um, I would have wanted to know that. I would have wanted to know that um, in coming into this career and helping others that I was going to find myself, but also that it was going to be painful. And then that of the pain was going to come a, a much more powerful person. And that's not what we're told. So I would have really wanted to find, uh, know that before I started. Yeah. Yeah. Finding true self comes with lots of experiences and other people sharing their mm -hmm. uh, vulnerabilities. And being vulnerable is, again, um, yeah. takes lots of courage. Uh, so in case if you give to an advice to uh, somebody out there, uh, probably a younger Rosanna or probably another uh, person out there who trying to pursue um, uh, their journey on into the field of social work, what would you give uh, your advice to somebody who is pursuing a career similar to yours? Hmm. I would say be open to the journey. Um, be open to both teaching and learning. Uh, be curious and empathic about people and their struggles. Um, and if you're coming into this field, make sure you create allies. Um, we cannot do this work alone. Um, as movement shakers, we want to influence and change systems 
So we need people who understand and are passionate about how the intersect of different social justice issues impact marginalized communities. Um, and so you want to be able to explain your purpose. Um, also, just understand that not everyone is in the same place or as woke as you are. And so you have to remember to take the time to help others see your vision, the pur purpose of social change, and the importance of righting the wrongs. And so having sort of that just humanity with others and, and making sure that you educate and you also create awareness before you expect them to just jump into your bus um, with you. That's true. That's awesome. In fact, most of us look for happiness online, be it in our comments, our likes and shares. The digital wellness is something, again, everybody's um, getting more addicted due to the digital literacy uh, during the last one year. Most of us spend enough number of hours on the screen mm -hmm. and we are so addicted to the kind of uh, engagement, but not many people are social on the social media platform. Finding allies is something definitely important. Thank you so much for sharing that, Rosanna. Mm -hmm. So did that also lead your journey to being an instructor? Because you mentioned keep learning, keep um, mm -hmm. teaching. Uh, so how did you... Um, end up uh, being part of Columbia School of Social yeah. Work, like? Yes. Um, so one of the things that happened, um, and I think I always feel like uh, when things come into your path, it was because it was meant to come at the time it was meant to come. I think there's right. a guy tried to come into doing, when I first graduated with my MSW, um, I wanted to teach. And it just as it didn't seem the time, no matter how much I tried, um, it just didn't come to me, um, even though I applied to different positions. And this one came very magically to me um, two years ago. And when a friend of mine's, um, two, two colleagues actually, two colleagues of mine who are very close friends now, and who I work with and definitely are mentors to me, um, invited me to come to teach um, in Columbia University. And I was like, I can't do this. You know, this is not part of what I do. But a lot of the, the classes that we were doing was definitely uh, social work classes. And I had already been um, in a field instructor to social work students. And so I've been doing that since, I would say, 11 years now for, as a field instructor. And so wow. one of the things that I um, thought about at the time is like, well, what is it that I can't teach that I haven't already taught my field and my, my students, the students that I supervise? Um, so that gave me a lot of confidence to go and do that. So I started working um, uh, as a part-time. Um, okay. University. But how would the work be as a field instructor? Because you spend over a decade, definitely, uh, unless you're passionate about the field work, um, as a field instructor, uh, you wouldn't be doing it uh, day in and day out. So many people who take up their career, they feel bored or there's this burnout after three to four years, they lose that spark or they yeah. lose their passion. Yeah, what no, no. What kept you moving I, forward? I, I definitely understand that aspect because um, when I entered my doctoral program, I was at that point. I was like, well, I've done it all almost, right? And so what yeah, do I do yeah. now? And um, what I tried to do before I started my doctoral programs was really engage in different areas of, of social work, um, whether that be like, again, policy work, community organizing, um, organizational leadership, um, and then I tried higher education, right? Because that's sort of where it was leading me to. I had tried these different areas. Um, and lastly, when I decided to do the doctoral program, I was like, well, this is my next step because I need to start doing something different. 
And I also want to be an influential person, right? Like I want to be able to influence these different parts. One of the things that was really um, important for me to see in my doctor programs was the gap in research that existed within my own communities. And that really made, got me to the point of being very passionate, um, of, of really wanting to make sure that, um, that we we're going to be heard, that our voices were being heard, that somehow I'm going to make this happen, right? And I still believe and am very passionate and dedicated and committed to doing this is wanting to make sure that my community is, is, is part of that. That we're gonna, the research is not gonna be based upon a one percent of of a Latinx a person or uh, uh, in in a particular research, and then you overgeneralize about how we can implement something to my community when only one person had been present. And so, how do we engage my community around research? Why is it important? Making sure they understand it, making sure they know the logistics around it. Um, I want to be part of that movement and that change within the research uh, field. And, you know, just to go back into what you talked about or asked a little bit about the field instruction, instruction um, one of the things that get, kept, keeps me passionate about being able to teach uh, MSW students is because it goes back into um, some of the myths about our, our profession, right? One of the things that they, students, many students come with is that social workers only do counseling, right? In clinical and direct service practice work. and. I, as I mentioned right now, I think we're influential everywhere. We're influential in policy work, we're influential in higher education, in community organizing, in organizational leadership, in, in management work. And so one of the things that I strongly encourage my social work interns to critically, critically think about is the intersect of, of all these areas of concentration and to look how they all influence each other and impact an individual client. So I want to shift the mindset that we do not only do clinical work or that if you decide to go into a track of community organizing, that somehow there's no connection to, to um, direct practice. So making sure to, to, for them to understand sort of the intersect and how they influence each other um, is something that I'm very, uh, I try to really teach my students. And I want them to do that because I know I wasn't actually taught that. And I know that I practice all this and I've been lucky and fortunate enough to be able to touch in different areas and work in different areas of social work that now I know the importance and the power it has to understand and engage these different places um, in order to make social change. Yeah, as a so as a strong research professional uh, with the kind of uh, resources which had helped you, is it always, uh, how does the research go? Like, um, are there any resources apart from normally the one uh, resource which I know is always Google. First thing is I always Google. So as a research professional, what are the resources which had helped you? How do you handle your students of master social work? Uh, how do you help them cope up with the kind I mean, of research? Definitely Google is a very helpful professor, <laughs> but um, it's not all. I think um, one of the things that being a, a student still in, in, in a PhD program, Having access to the library is important for me because I'm able to find an array of things. Oh, um, okay. And I think that's one of the things that has been super helpful for me. But also, um, even when I don't have, um, the library doesn't have a specific article or a specific resource, I try to, as much as I can, to purchase, if I can, um, some of the resources that are available. The other thing that I've, I've done on my own is really connect um, and reach out to some of the authors um, to talk a little bit about their work and to understand their process. Um, this, I wouldn't be the first researcher doing things 
on my own. So why would I have to reinvent the wheel, right? So it's just, I That's do right. speak to um, other researchers and see their journey. What I'm trying to connect to, to is also researchers who are researchers of color um, to see what they're doing as well, because I do want to create, make sure that I use them as a resource to see where they're at in their journey, but also to create a community because I feel like we're all, especially in the, in, in I have to say in the PhD, um, once you reach a PhD, it's like, it's, there's a lot of um, doing things on your own, maybe, yeah. and um, I don't want to do that. Uh, I, I don't um, think at this point yeah. when we, we reach this with this port time or I guess this level of of, of um, studies and and sort of expertise, we want to create these experts as opposed to doing things on our own because you know we just want to do it in that way. What's for me is just like. I feel the power in unity and making sure that when we're talking about, even for myself, when we're talking about a social justice issue we want to address in research, then how do we do that in a way that it's not just one researcher, two researchers are talking about it, but you have a whole bunch of researchers because it's going to create power. And so for me, that's important for, for me to at least have contact with different, different people who have done this in the past, especially people who look like me. Yeah, awesome. I had a aha moment. So the core element of being a social worker is first be social. So look yeah. for partnerships, collaboration, probably as a research professional also. I guess um, we are overprotective or we are trying to secure the kind of research which we do, doing all by ourselves. But I guess a conversation will definitely help. That's awesome. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Rosanna, for sharing. I could uh, visualize that, I could predict, uh, confirm conversations or Campuzana conversations as a show, mm -hmm. uh, like a coffee show with, or coffee with uh, Rosanna confirm, or probably coffee with Campuzana. Yeah, probably, I, I could predict, I could predict something like that. Uh, the way you put it across, this is awesome. So. Um, with respect to uh, education, uh, again, as uh, are you still part of this uh, PhD research uh, at Fordham University, or yes, is so, it so yes, I, I just I will let you know a little bit of my journey. So I started three years ago um, doing uh, interim school, doing coursework, and I don't know if you how much you know about the PhDs within the United States or at least with Fordham University. One of the things that you have to do first is do um, coursework. After coursework, you do um, comprehensive exams, and then after the comprehensive yeah. exams, you go into dissertation. So I finished coursework, and so I'm now in the phase of comprehensive exams. And so in the midst of it right now, I'm doing two research. I'm a research assistant in two projects with two different professors. Um, so that has completely helped me to understand a lot of what how research is being done, but also just to the classes, right? I think it's now the, the sort of what I learned, the classes I'm able to implement. Um, and I'm translating that into a lot of things when it comes to my current job. So uh, that's where I'm at. I'm in the learning process. I'm still learning. I'm not even, I can't even say I'm an expert to it because I think it takes years to do that. But definitely in the, in the moment of, of absor absorbing and learning and really having these aha moments and these moments of like, that's the way I can do it and that's how I can do it different. This is how I can amend that and this is how I'm going to create that. So having the, the sort of the opportunity to be able to create something new, but also following obviously sort of the, the protocols that it comes from, when it comes to research, but also to put in your culture and your and your background and your traditions in it, and make sure that those folks that 
have been silenced or have been invisible thus far in research as present is so it's so great for me to see that. It's so great for me to be able to be part of that. And I want to continue to do that. Awesome. So um, diving uh, down further. Um, now, I know that you are your own influential person because the moment we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, when we look at uh, our own eyes, so probably we look at our mirror, we are our own most influential person. But who are the three people who had been influential to you during this journey of uh, being uh, mm. creating more awareness be part of domestic violence or trying to be uh, who you are right now who are the most influential persons at the at the moment or just yes. like in the uh, um, uh, in, at the moment because uh, we're all living our lives in boxes yeah. uh, probably at the moment would be great yeah um so i have i do have uh, three uh, people right now that have been influential in this journey and when it comes especially the PAP program um is my mother my father and my spiritual mentor um, and all three of them have different reasons why um my mother uh she this is one of the strongest humans i know um she came as an immigrant to this country started working brought my dad um, and then later my brother and I to the United States. Um, I can't even imagine how scary that must have been for her to leave her family and everything she knew to come here and start a new life. On top of that, um, not knowing the language, um, not knowing the culture, um, in a different culture than hers. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that was just scary. I can't even imagine what that felt like for her. At the same time, I, I cannot help to recognize that this is one of the bravest things she's done. Which has influenced me to look at my to look at fear in my eyes, like look at fear really in the eyes, and just take, not be afraid, and just take the risk. Um, so that was one of the things that I, I feel like, one of the many things that I've learned from my mother, and and to try to hone into my own, um, uh, my own work that I do for myself, um, and see what they've done because these are uh, you know folks my mom, my mom and dad they're uh, folks who had no education who didn't even strive for it they were just working they, they were uh, one of 10 children in their family and they had to take care of the younger ones all of this was part of their reality um, and here they are they moved into the state and created this this created me you know like who I've become and so definitely they have been very influential my dad is a go-getter he's like nothing's gonna stop me I'm just gonna go I'm looking at that one thing over there that smiles away and I'm going to make it. That man has been knocked down several times, but he still made it that to that same path where he said he was, he had looked at and that's where I'm going. And that's sort of the same way I am. Um, awesome. I've knocked me down and definitely I've kept going and definitely my spiritual mentor. I'm a spiritual person. So um, he has helped me ground myself. He has helped me understand better understand sort of my own uh, connection to the universe and to God um, and, and that helps a lot in my own faith and for me to go forward when things are not easy. And they're not easy, especially for someone who looks like myself. Awesome. That's that's, that's good. I, I wish uh, somebody out there, now again, the three most influential people had definitely paved uh, like the path, whatever the path. In fact, they didn't go through any licensure exams or tough uh, research, which you had gone through, but their life and journey had uh, paved their paths. So uh, again, this is this is probably we will. Uh, this would be the last question for the day. But 
if somebody had uh, or if you if you had to spend 100 million mm -hmm. uh, probably be it in therapy or counseling what is that one thing which you would work on uh, how would you spend over a hundred million as part of a strong research personal how if somebody had or if you had hundred million how would you spend it right i mean one of the things that i've been looking at during this time of COVID um has been uh on the medical and mental health um issues that many many people have gone through um COVID impacted our communities a lot. And one of the things that, um, just to share with you, my uncle passed away in the first wave of COVID um, back in March. And then I had a oh, lot, sorry of, sorry. lot of family members, thank you, a lot of family members and friends who passed away right after. Um, January this year, um, a friend, a family member, and also um, another aunt passed away because of COVID. Um, so for me, it is so important to, to understand sort of the health divide that exists, right, in our communities and how do we make, um, for example, health insurance or health care um, available for these, for people who are marginalized, basically. Um, one of the things within COVID is that you saw a lot of increments of telehealth services that were being offered um, during 2020. I myself had to reach out to many doctors due to like several, several heart conditions, uh, health conditions. Um, and I feel like we all had health conditions in 2020 because we were just all exasperated and anxious and everything was happening so quickly. Um, so I was able to connect and speak with my doctors via you know, the video platform that they offer. And while I think this is such a, this is such a valuable resource, um, I recognize that not everyone has access to internet or communication technology. And you know the internet, just like with you and me right now, like we have, we're enabled us to talk together and it's enabled us to connect. It, is able, it enables us to like sort of continue our lives despite the pandemic, right? Yet this isn't yeah. a reality for everyone. Um, digitalization is not happening equally all over the world and COVID-19 has widened the digital divide that exists, that already existed in Latinx immigrant communities. Um, this divide persists because um, you know, the high, even though there's, there's so many like mass marketing of electronic devices, but internet's yeah. so expensive. Like who can afford, if you don't have the economics means to do that, who's going who can afford to buy one? And um, I think one of the things that, aside from that, I think one of the other things that um, creates sort of this digital divide is the lack of knowledge. Like some of these like media, like you, you should send me this link to come into StreamYard. I've never seen it. And I was like, well, how do I do this, right? And you some, somehow have to be computer savvy to try to go into it. But someone who doesn't have that ability is not going to be able to come and connect to you in that way. And even with those that um, when we were trying to uh, connect with clients through a, a, a telepath, telehealth platform, there were many um, clients who didn't understand the language around it because they were all in English. And so for me, that's also the lack of divide that happens. So if I had $100 million to spend on health tech, I would invest it in some form of electronic device for internet access that patients can be given so that they can connect, especially those with chronic conditions, so that they can communicate with their doctors. Um, so if each patient would be able to get some form of something, I don't know, a deeper looking something that they can have access to the doctors right away 
because they may not have the means, they may not have Wi-Fi, they may not have um, a, a technology that connects accurately to or effectively to the doctors would be helpful. So for example, an elderly patient recovering at home for in a post-acute care can receive a video consultation without having to physically go into the office and not be financially impacted by travel costs. So I, that's what I would do with the $1 million. Awesome. So one click of a button, they could talk to their therapist. That's, yeah. again, a uh, need of the hour. Many people, they, um, they can't afford therapy or they can't uh, afford a counselor. That's what mm -hmm. uh, I see. Many people avoid counseling or therapies because mm -hmm. uh, they can't afford the number of hours and uh, finding the right person or probably the right mentor. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Rosanna, for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your journey. Um, I know definitely this could go on for a couple of hours <laughs> because there's a lot to talk. So we could have a series of shows on uh, being indigenous healers. Uh, probably we can talk about healing and empowerment uh, in the future shows as well. Um, but again, for all the listeners out there who would catch up the social media bites. Uh, and if you are listening to this on Google Podcast, Replay, or Apple Podcast, uh, I would request you to uh, send in your feedback or leave your comments. And I'll send you all the recordings, Rosanna. I'll send you no, all the links so and another email. Thank you so much for being yeah. here with us. And we will uh, we will talk soon and I'll connect with you. We'll look for uh, collaboration or partnership again, creating more yeah. awareness on all the aspects which you're working on. And um, also as an upcoming author, that's something which is um, yes. which we will we will speak about probably by the time you launch your book. I don't know. Is it going to be finished by um, by the end of uh, this quarter, or uh, do we have oh, a deadline on the book? Not yet. Okay. I think um, I'm, I'm trying to concentrate because I do a lot of writing with the doctoral program. I do want to concentrate on finishing the doctoral program and um, then okay. my book at this point. So it wouldn't be necessarily. In, By in the end of 2021, okay. Yeah. Okay, let's hope so. But mm -hmm. again, I'll, I'll stay in touch with you and uh, thank you for being another influential person uh, within the community in mental health space. Again, um, it's, it's, it's an honor for um, us, and you sharing your story and being with, here with us. Thank you so much, Rosanna. And you, I'll talk to you Thank you for Bye -bye. the invitation and thank you for having me here as well. Thank you so thank much, you. Rosanna. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you all.